agents yeah. with this with this new uh, the, with this five trillion six trillion bill whatever it is. You know what I heard Saturday morning on NBC that woman has this DC that by Halloween if they sign both bills she's gonna step down. Nancy Pelosi. Who stepped down? Just step down. Wouldn't that be great? Except for those white bills. The bills that they're not going to be signed because Joe Manchin is that the one for the progressives. Well, if they don't pass the bills. No, if they pass the bills, she says she's going to step down. Why? She knows they're not going to pass the bills. Yeah, because her dream came true. Yeah. <laughs> so we can win to the West. Yeah. yeah. No. But yeah, so I was thinking of St. Matthew, the tax collector. I mean, it's really St. Matthew was an agent of a, of a foreign power, an occupying power of the, of the Roman government. You know, that's why he was such a horrible sinner in the eyes of the Jewish people. And it would be similar, I think, with this army of IRS agents that uh, um, that Biden intends to hire if they pass this bill, because they would in effect be agents of an occupying power. The people, the people of the United States didn't vote for this. You know? um, so it's uh, terrible to be looking at our bank accounts. Well, the whole, the whole vaccine mandate, I mean, they, 25% of the Navy SEALs refused to get it. Isn't that interesting? One third of the air traffic controllers. Yeah. And they, they lose their job. Imagine, imagine between Thanksgiving and New Year's. Yeah. What a disaster trying to fly. And then all these nurses. You know? That's, so that's the one thing I really enjoy. First, uh, uh, stand up for all the uh, the nurses and the doctors. Last year, they hear you're fired. Not a horrible. Well, yeah. Remember, I, you know, during COVID, I, you know, I was down in the parish where I, as you know, was until I came back to teach full time, and it, it's uh, in the um, the East Village, and the place was deserted. Uh, it's 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 one of the most uh, cutting edge parts of the city now, but but uh, it was deserted for a few months after COVID started, um, and I would. Uh, because of my orthopedist, I would take walks, but I had to be very careful because it was deserted and Cuomo had, had let everybody out of prison, you know, so they were back in their stations, you know, shooting people and so forth. I had to be very careful, but uh, so I'd be sure to go out in daylight. I remember this was going on for several months. It was, I think it was at seven o'clock at night. Suddenly the pots and the pans would start banging and you'd hear all the, the noise because, and it was, um, you know, people hanging out of windows making all this noise and it was, it was, uh, um, a, a sign of um, appreciation. appreciation for the hospital workers and so forth. And now, essential workers. Essential workers. Now they're all getting fired. fired. They're horrible. Getting fired. Yeah. Oh, one of the things in the bill is uh, to give money to felons for housing. Yeah. Give them a, beat your wife, get some money. Yeah, it's a big deal. <laughs> so I don't know. My doctor said, I asked him, should I take this one? Because yeah, I have a history of allergies to these. Uh, uh, to like flu flu shots and things, and he said to me very simply, "You don't want to get COVID." <laughs> he said, "You know," he gave me all sorts of stuff uh, for the allergic reactions which came, <laughs> but he said, "You don't want to get COVID. It's that serious, you know." So. Well, Colin Powell died today from obligations. Yeah, he was a general. Can you imagine? <laughs> Even generals can. We, is everyone here who's going to be here today? I guess uh, we should well, start, huh? Okay. Yeah, Dr. Anthony was not able to come. I remember oh. he sent an email. Oh, he did. Oh, okay. So he's, he's, oh, he's on. I'm home. here. Okay, good. Where are you? Oh, he's on. <laughs> You can see my name. I'm in a federal building, so I can't I can't have oh. a camera on. <laughs> oh, I was waiting for you to show up. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> we'll take a look at the okay. I'm virtual. Oh, 
Oh, all right. Can you see me? Or are you... Yeah, I can see you. Oh, okay, great. Okay, good. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary. Holy Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Saint Luke, pray for us. And in your charity, if you pray for my uh, my mother, today's the 10th anniversary of going home to God. Eternal rest grant unto her, O Lord, and let me perpetually May her soul, souls of all the faithful departed, the mercy of God, and many Amen. Father, some of us to Now, my mother was speaking of uh, essential workers. My mother was uh, a nurse and a nursing administrator, and she she was on the night shift. Um, as, as the ranking administrator uh, at St. Luke's Hospital in Manhattan uh, on the night shift um, for many years. It was a difficult uh, time for her and for our family. And um, it's interesting, she, she died on the feast of St. Luke. Uh, so maybe I'll die on the feast of St. Raymond of Pennyford. Remember, he's the patron saint of Canada lawyers, right? Okay. All righty. So, um, so we're, we're kind of um, you know, skimming the surface and occasionally diving down um, and then skimming the surface again with all of these uh, general norms. Uh, you know, and I realize as, as in any field, you know, these things can be kind of confusing. Um, and uh, we, we try as we can to focus on what you just basically really need for, uh, for parochial ministry. So that's, uh, uh, you know, that's why we skip an awful lot. Because um, a, a lot of this stuff, it's instructions to bishops and chancery officials and that kind of stuff that you don't need to know. You know? So, um, so as, I, as I've been saying, when I say skip, you know, make a note, skip this. Don't, you know, don't get yourself bogged down with stuff. And even when I get into a particular canon, um, uh, typically there are just certain aspects of it that you need to know. Um, so that, that's why we kind of go the way we do with this. It'll, uh, and this is all preparation for what's coming later, you know, um, very shortly in this, this, uh, this period, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, when we start talking about um, concrete stuff, the, the people of God, uh, particular offices in the church, uh, then we get into the sacraments, uh, a little bit in baptism, and then we're really going to focus on uh, on marriage because that's uh, where you guys and you know as as a priest of the archdiocese, but just speaking for priests of all dioceses, you know I thank you for doing this because uh, deacons in in parishes who know what they're doing when it comes to marriages especially are invaluable. You know that alone takes an awful lot of weight off off the shoulders of of, of the priests, uh, the few priests that are left. You know marriages and and baptisms. Okay, so we're going to be focusing on that. So all this is kind of moving forward, uh, getting getting us ready for that. And in terms of the, um, you know, I, I put on the on the um, on the syllabus a midterm. Uh, the midterm, you know, I usually have a little bit later because. Uh, uh, not right in midterm week. I'll probably have it in a couple, well, we'll see. We'll see how we go today. Um, but what I do with the midterm is I, I cover what we've, we've looked at in book one and in book two, uh, the people of God. Um, and it's, 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 it's a lot of general stuff, you know, that, that, that we deal with in those, those two. So that kind of clears the way for us to focus on this, on sacraments. Okay. 
So that's that's um, kind of the modus operandi here. You know? And again, I'm operating from my own experience uh, as a canon lawyer, my, my own experience um, working on the tribunal, um, on several tribunals for many years, and um, and just being involved with different parishes over the years, and, and also most recently just being a pastor myself. So, uh, um, and I know what what bishops and pastors and others want me to make sure you know okay so that's why we're kind of going the way we go um so we're up to ecclesiastical offices and uh so this is uh beginning with canon 145 we're going to skip most of this because uh a lot of this is very very technical and it and it has to do with uh concerns uh, beginning beginning canon 145 if you're questioning okay um, Canons 145 to 196, and it's mostly instructions for bishops and, and chancery people and, and people like that. Uh, a few basic things we need to know we can cover pretty pretty quickly, just the very notion of an ecclesiastical office. And then the, the rest you can skip. Okay. When I say skip, of course, that doesn't mean you're banned from looking at it for the rest of your life, but, but in terms of what you need to prepare for, for exams, you can skip it. So the first canon, uh, canon 145, is obviously important. This defines what an ecclesiastical office is. An ecclesiastical office uh, is any function constituted in a stable manner by divine or ecclesiastical ordinance to be exercised for a spiritual purpose. The obligations and rights proper to individual ecclesiastical offices are defined either in the law by which the office is constituted or in the decree of the competent authority by which the office is at the same time constituted and conferred. So, um, so, it, so first of all, an ecclesiastical office is um, a function. Uh, and our, our, uh, our, if you have the green commentary, it can be very helpful in this respect. It is a munis, uh, which is um, translated as function. Um, uh, it, it is. Just that it is a function, um, and we can think in terms of offices that we're aware of in the church: the office of bishop in the church, the office of pastor in the church, um, uh, things like that. They are functions; they're, they're, they're roles that people play. Right? Uh, Saint John Paul the Great uh, was an actor, you know, when he was younger, and he he had a, a sense of, of knowing how to play a role. So in a, in a good sense, you know, uh, just you know, here, here's what you're assigned to do, well, you do it, this is what it means. So when he was elected pope, he knew I have to be the pope, you know, and he knew how a pope was supposed to act, you know, um, because he was fulfilling an ecclesiastical office. And he did it, as we know, he did it in a marvelous way. His feast day is coming up on Friday, as a matter of fact. Um, and it's any function constituted in a stable manner. So uh, if um, if somebody if your bishop uh, if you say your uh, your pastor makes you the head of a um, you know a, a committee to look at the um, um, uh, the, the, the Halloween party right uh, you're being the head of this committee doesn't mean that you have an office right because it's not something constituted in a stable manner right so um, it has to be uh, something that is stable. Um, and typically, you know, bishops, pastors, and so forth. 
um, by divine or ecclesiastical ordinance. So again, bishop, divine ordinance, right? Um, um, and it's to be exercised for a spiritual purpose, right? And then the obligations and rights are defined, uh, uh, this is just common sense, they're defined either in the law uh, by which the office is constituted. So we'll see, uh, we'll, we'll take a glance at, at uh, some of these laws that define the office of the bishop and so forth, uh, or in the decree of the competent authority. So that's that's really all you need to know about full office. Um, okay. <clears throat> and Canon 146 uh, states, which should be obvious, but it's not obvious to some, um, that an, an ecclesiastical office cannot be acquired validly without canonical provision, which means that the person in authority has to confer the office on you. However, that that happens. Uh, typically, if you're appointed, uh, somebody's appointed a pastor, he gets a letter from from the bishop. You know, um, if uh, uh, if somebody's elected pope, uh, then there's a procedure for electing the pope, right? And that's how the person receives that uh, that office. Um, and Number 149, to be promoted to an ecclesiastical office, a person must be in the communion of the church as well as suitable. That is endowed with those qualities which are required for that office by universal particular law, etc. Um, provision of an ecclesiastical office made to one who lacks the requisite qualities is invalid only if the qualities are expressly required for the validity of the provision by universal particular law or by the law of the foundation. Otherwise, it is valid can be rescinded. Um, and then they mentioned simony, buy, buying an office. That's invalid. Um, that's invalid. You pay somebody else to, uh, to get an office. But um, the, the, um, the important part, well, two important parts, Canon uh, 149, number one, to have to be promoted to an ecclesiastical office, the person must be in the communion of the church. Okay? Um, and again, we, we think of a bishop of the diocese or something like that, uh, as well as suitable person has to have the qualifications. And most particularly, uh, number two, provision of an ecclesiastical office made to one who lacks the requisite qualities is invalid only if the qualities are expressly required for the validity of the provision. For instance, um, to be a pastor, uh, one must be a validly ordained priest. If a bishop says, uh, we have a priest shortage, I'm going to appoint uh, Mrs. Uh, you know O'Brien uh, to be pastor of such and such a parish, that is invalid. She lacks the, the um, requisite qualities, okay, um, that are expressly required for validity for validity of the provision. Okay. Right. Again, that's kind of should be common sense. Um, well, as a matter of fact, uh, then the very next canon. Wonder why that was in my head. The very next canon refers specifically to that. Um, Canon 150, an office which entails the full care of souls and for whose fulfillment the exercise of the priestly order is required cannot be conferred validly on one who is not yet a priest. And so um, that is, um, uh, so being a pastor entails the full care of souls, meaning uh, confessions and saying mass and, and, and all of the rest. Um, and so in order to do that, you need to be a priest. So therefore, it cannot be conferred validly on one who's not yet a priest, not including a deacon, right? So uh, a deacon cannot be made a pastor. 
Um, uh, Canon 151, don't worry about, uh, that's for a bishop to remember, provision of an, of an office which entails the care of souls is not to be deferred without a great cause. Okay. Um, okay, I think that that is, uh, I think that is basically it, believe it or not. Uh, we can just skip now because all this is it's very technical about how one can acquire an office and so forth and getting elected to an office and and can, you know, all these, all this stuff about voting and so on and so forth. So postulation. Um, that loss of ecclesiastical office. Um, again, the, the, this is just for your general knowledge. I'm not going to be quizzing you on this, and it's, it's, and it's, it's pretty obvious anyway, just for your general information so you've heard it. So don't worry about this. Canon 184, an ecclesiastical office is lost by the lapse of a in time. We appointed a pastor for six years. Well, six years are up, Father. You know, okay. Uh, by reaching the age determined by law, uh, by resignation, by transfer, by removal, and by privation. We're not going to get into all these in detail. Um, but number two is, is something to remember uh, in case uh, people ask this when, say, uh, um, uh, I is Bishop DeMarzio still Bishop of Brooklyn? Or is he Bishop Emeritus? Or what is he? There's a new bishop appointed to Brooklyn. You may have heard this. I don't yeah. know when it went into effect. Pardon? Sure. I don't know when it was going November 30th. So until then, does Bishop DeMarzio just remain as Bishop of Brooklyn? See, see when, um, when uh, then Archbishop Dolan was appointed to New York, uh, Cardinal Egan uh, became Archbishop Emeritus. He was no longer um, Archbishop of New York. He was Archbishop Emeritus. Uh, he was basically the administrator uh, for for the diocese, which it was is a bit of a, a change which you don't have to worry about. So, um, um, so, um, and then he was called Emeritus. You know. In any case, um, we, we won't. Uh, we won't worry about this in, in, in any detail. Um, just to, so you know, that, that, that's how an ecclesiastical office is lost. Uh, Canon 185, the title of emeritus, uh, can be conferred upon a person who loses an office by reason of age or of resignation, which has been accepted. So Cardinal Egan was Archbishop Emeritus, Pope Benedict is, is uh, Pope Emeritus, and so forth. Okay. Um, oh, I know what I was going to say. I'm sorry. Um, the, um, where, where, sorry. Uh, there's a, it's not lost, it's just, um, I was just looking at it and I lost it. Um, hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, here it is. Canon 184, number two. That's what I wanted to focus on, I'm sorry. Um, that's something for your general knowledge in case there's any question. I'm not gonna put it on a quiz, but you'll need to know this in your, uh, in your, in your ministry. Canon 184, number two, an ecclesiastical office is not lost by the expiration in any way of the authority of the one who conferred it, unless the law provides otherwise. All right, so um, so when the bishop of a diocese leaves, that doesn't suddenly mean all the pastors lose their titles and, and everyone else loses their titles. You know, um, They remain. They were appointed in a stable way. There are certain offices that depend on that particular bishop. Uh, the vicar general, for instance, loses his office when the... Uh, when the bishop of the diocese leaves, because uh, his his office depends on the office of bishop. The judicial vicar, interestingly enough, 
um, keeps his keeps his office even when the bishop of the, of the diocese leaves. So in the interregnum between uh, Cardinal Egan and, and Archbishop Dolan arriving, um, I, I was the only member of the administration of the Archdiocese of New York who kept his office uh, because I was judicial vicar. And, and uh, for, for, for the sake of stability in, in the judicial system in the court, uh, the law provides for the judicial vicar alone to remain in office, but everyone else technically lost their offices. In fact, they were running around doing what they had been doing before, you know, um, but they couldn't do it officially. Anyway, so you, you get the general point, all right? Okay. Father? Yes. On 185, it says the title of emeritus can be emeritus. conferred upon a person who loses an office by reason of age. So does that mean a priest, when he turns 75, if he decides not to be a pastor, he's not a pastor anymore, and he's not going to be a parochial vicar, would, would, would he be called a emeritus then? Um, yeah, you can have a pastor emeritus, certainly. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are a bunch of those floating around. You know? so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm pastor emeritus, right? I'm pastor where I will perish where I was. You know? Okay. So, um, yeah, but uh, but you're technically you're talking about uh, somebody who loses the uh, office by reason of age or of resignation, which has been accepted. You know? But um, all right, let's not worry about emeritus, okay? So, I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah. We have other things to worry about. Um, um, the uh, kind of 186. Also, again, I'm not going to quiz you on this, but just so you know, because this is going to come up. Uh, you'll have a pastor, for instance, who, uh, who, who is, um, whose term is up. Can 186 says, loss of an office by the lapse of a predetermined time or by the reaching of a certain age takes effect only from the moment when the competent authority communicates it in writing. Okay, so that's important to remember. So your pastor, if you're in a large diocese, your pastor, six years are up you know, for his term. Um, he hasn't heard anything from anybody in the chancery office. He just keeps going, and he still has his office. It doesn't magically change as soon as uh, you know the the day comes when his six years are up, right? They have to tell him in writing. Otherwise, it would just be chaos, right? And they're doing this a lot now with with uh, pastors who reach age seventy five. Uh, that's in the Archdiocese of New York. That's the cutoff age um, when they ask a pastor to resign. Uh, but in fact, a lot of guys stay on, um, and uh, and then when uh, when the archdiocese gets around to putting something in writing, um, they will appoint an administrator, um, you know, for however, I think a year at a time. But again, the point is, the person continues in office until something, there's something in writing. Otherwise, we'll just have chaos. Um, Father, is the vicar priest in a, in a parish considered an office? Parochial vicar? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. So yes, the same rule. Yes, yes, yes. The yes. same rule will apply if they're for three years. And right. All, if they have not received anything in writing, so they still assigned to that parish. Professor in the seminary is appointed. I don't even know how long I'm appointed for, to tell you the truth. You know. Um, <laughs> I think when we first came here, it was it was a problem because the archdiocese um, went through a period when they they uh, whoever was in charge, it couldn't have been. Cardinal Dolan himself, but people in charge wanted to have as much flexibility as possible to move people around whenever they wanted at will. And it was chaos. And for a while, pastors were not being appointed. They were only appointing administrators. 
Uh, they had reasons for this. There were a lot of changes going on and so forth. You know? So, um, um, and 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 the mentality in the archdiocese has been, we uh, and there are historical reasons for this. We don't want anybody in an office to have too much power, you know, because that that could be a threat to, you know, the boys in the chancery office. You know? So. Um, so when somebody's appointed to an office, typically in the Archdiocese of New York, it's like three years. You know, so we can get him out of there in three years if we don't like him. You know, the um, the uh, it happened to me when I was appointed uh, judicial vicar because the, the code says a judicial vicar. Um, that's what you think of the Supreme Court, where you want to have judges who are there for uh, just there and, and it's stable. You don't want to have them kicked out all the time. You know, so a judicial vicar is supposed to. Kind of stay in office for a long time. I was appointed for three years, you know, which is kind of nuts, you know. Then uh, when when we had the merger here for the seminary, everyone was appointed for three years. Every faculty member was appointed for three years, which is crazy, you know. You can, you, we don't even get through a whole class, you know. First theology enters, and, and they're not even ordained yet, and and, and, and the, uh, the the terms are up for the professor. So, um, uh, but it didn't matter because. Um, it, it was a stupid idea, and uh, nobody was saying anything. We just kept we just kept teaching, you know. So, so <laughs> finally, somebody got around to uh, changing the uh, the term to I forget how long it is now, but um, you know, it's the the point is they have to tell you in writing, you know. Uh, okay, enough time on that. Um, and then um, Canon one eighty seven, uh, and we're talking about resignation. And in 187, anyone responsible for oneself, remember that term sui compos, right? Anyone responsible for, for oneself can resign from ecclesiastical office for a just cause, including, as we saw several years ago, the Pope himself, right? Um, let's see. Um, I'm not going to quiz you on this, but this is just for your information because it's come up and in, in uh, connection with Pope Benedict, you know, I, I don't think there's anything to it, but still, a resignation, Canon 188, a resignation made out of grave fear that is inflicted unjustly or out of malice, substantial error or simony is invalid by the law itself. Some people say that, you know, he was coerced into resigning or something, you know, you hear all these conspiracy theories and so forth. But um, if a person resigns out of grave fear, that's invalid. Um, the, um, Uh, well, I, let's let's not worry about the process of resignation. Um, again, uh, I'm not going to quiz you on this, but just for your information, because it's interesting about the, uh, the Holy Father, Canon 189, uh, number one, to be valid, a resignation, whether it requires acceptance or not, must be made to the authority to whom it pertains to make provision of the office in question. This must be done either in writing or orally in the presence of two witnesses. So. Who does, if the Pope wants to resign, who is the authority um, to whom it pertains to make provision of the office in question? All right, the bishops. Pardon? College of Bishops? Or? Higher, much higher. Holy Spirit. Uh, God! <laughs> so, so we'll see, if we have if we have time, well, we'll see this when we get to uh, the hierarchical constitution of the church. Uh, when the Pope resigns, no one has to accept it. He doesn't submit his resignation to the College of Cardinals and then they debate it and decide whether to accept it or not. No, he does it on his own authority. If he wants to resign, he resigns. 
just make, but he has to uh, communicate it clearly. It has to be clear that, that he's, he's doing freely. We might get to that canon if we have time. Um, anyway, don't worry about this. I just wanted to you to see it because these things have come up, right? Um, we're not going to worry about uh, transfer because this will be going on all the time. You, you, will, you will see it um, in parishes where you are. Um, and, it's, and it's pretty self-evident. Um, so let's not worry about transfer, removal, and all the rest. Um, Canon 195. Oh, skip, so we're skipping everything. All these things I'm talking about, we're skipping, right? Canon 195, though, you need to know for your just because of what's going on in the church. Uh, Canon 195, if a person is removed, not by the law itself, but by a decree of competent authority from an office which provides the person support, the same authority is to take care that the support is provided for a suitable period unless other provision is made. This has come up in connection with priests who have been accused um, and um, we, we've gone through a period, and some bishops are still doing this, uh, where bishops, because of the press, wanted to be seen as being really, really tough on child molesters. You know, so any bishop, any uh, priest who was accused was considered guilty. You know, and uh, I know it was some. Now I know many priests who have been falsely accused. Um, uh, I even did a. Um, did some trials for priests early on because I was, I was on the tribunal. We had to have canonical trials for priests. And, and the first trial that we had, oh, my God, the guy was, oh, this is really bad. I mean, this guy really, you know, he was doing bad things with teenage boys, you know. The second trial, we're taking testimony. There's this accusation, and we're saying, all right, let's look into this. And so we, we bring in the, the one person who's accusing him. And, huh? And what he was saying happened. It was one incident that was a physical impossibility, you know. And there, and there were so many things that were just off about this. After a while, we realized this guy, he's either deliberately lying or he's got serious problems. And he, he's making something up and whatever it is. But we realized it wasn't true, you know. Um, what to do? The, the, the poor uh, – well, anyway, I don't want to get into details about that but my point is there have been a lot of a lot of priests falsely accused and for a while there were bishops who were saying i don't care if you're falsely accused or not you're accused you're out you're a liability i want you out of here you know and i and i want you to um the bishop would say and i and he'll he'll say i want you i want you to seek voluntary laicization priests could be totally innocent somebody accuses them of something that happened allegedly and it didn't happen 30 years ago could be totally innocent the bishop's reaction sometimes has been, get out of here. You're a liability. I can't have you function uh, as a priest anymore because you've been accused. Um, and so they, they, they threw, uh, there are some bishops who were throwing, throwing guys under the bus, you know. And, um, and sometimes, um, I've heard of this happening, sometimes to coerce them, uh, an innocent priest, falsely accused, betrayed by his own bishop, and uh, sometimes the, the bishop would, would then cut his salary, kick him out of the rectory, and not give him a place to live, and so on and so forth. That's all illegal. All of it is illegal. All these bishops were, were breaking the law. I remember once uh, I was over in Rome uh, talking to uh, an official of the Congregation for the, for the um, Doctrine of the Faith, which dealt with deals deals with all of these um, accusations of, of, of crimes um, against priests. 
And we're talking about a bishop who was do, doing this to uh, an innocent priest in his diocese. And this official said, you know, we, we don't have police at the Vatican, you know. <laughs> uh, we, 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 can't, we can't go and strong arm the bishop and force him to do what he's supposed to do. You know, we can, only, we can tell him what he has to do. He's disobeying. You know, um, what, what, can we, what can we do? You know, so um, anyway, this kind of stuff goes on. So um, it's important to remember that um, the uh, the diocese uh, owes you know a priest support or, or anyone else uh, who's hired by the, the diocese, um, even if the bishop you know doesn't like him or whatever else, he's so responsible for it. Father Elder. And, Yes. What what's the recourse for a priest that that happens to? Because I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I mean, it seems like it, you know this type of stuff. It's hearsay, right? They have no proof that anything was done, but they're railroading this guy, and you right. know they're ruining his life. And and it, right. does he have any recourse? Yeah, that's 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 been going on. You know, um, it's a complicated process. Um, the if if everyone would follow canon law. It would be taken care of. You know, the problem is that some, some bishops. I'm not saying any of our bishops. You know, but uh, but some bishops have simply violated canon law. They've ignored what canon law requires the bishop to do. They said to the priest, "Get out of here. I don't want you." They're violating his rights and so forth. Um, uh, and they, they just ignore canon law. Uh, but what I just mentioned, uh, I was I was over in Rome, talking to one of the officials about a priest who was in this situation. And that, that priest was trying, in fact, to um, pursue canonical recourse against the, um, the action that the, the bishop uh, had taken against him. Um, and uh, it was proceeding, you know, because the bishop was totally in the wrong. Uh, the bishop was directed by the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. I'm watching my side, I want to go off the screen. Uh, the bishop was directed by the congregation to um, uh, restore the priest to ministry, et cetera, et cetera. The bishop simply refused. So that's when the official said, well, we can only go so far, but we can't send cops over and force the bishop. Um, if, if worse comes to worse, if a bishop is really bad with something, um, there's a nuclear option, which is to remove the bishop, you know? But um, yeah, that's a nuclear option because that's terribly disrupting to, uh, to the whole church, you know? And the stability of the office of the bishop is really important, even when the bishop himself is a jerk. You know, so, so yeah, uh, canon law has great um, provisions for uh, for recourse against decisions um, that that people feel are unfair. But um, people in charge have to be willing to follow canon law, and, and uh, we've had a problem in our country. Uh, uh, this is why we're, we have the mess with the child. Um, uh, with, with the child abuse to begin with, um, bishops simply have not followed the law. When I was sitting here uh, as a student many years ago studying the 1917 code, and we had canon law every semester, right? One of the first things we had to study was the process for dealing with uh, a priest who has been accused. You know, and there was a whole process that was to be followed. And, and if you're the priest who, uh, who hears this, you're required to do X. The bishop is then required to do Y. Everyone's required to do this and the other thing. There's a whole, um, a whole procedure that was laid out very clearly in canon law. Well, when these things actually happened, uh, so many American bishops weren't doing anything. 
you know, somebody was, was a priest was accused and a bishop would, would uh, instead of following canon law, would consult, um, no offense to civil lawyers, but he would simply follow civil law, uh, the advice of civil lawyers and, uh, and psychologists. Yeah. And should we have that? Maybe we should close that door. I don't know if I'm, are we bothering anybody? I don't think so. Okay. Is there anybody next door? Oh, no, there's nobody there. All right. Okay. You sure? Yes. The lights on. Lights on. And Father Chris isn't there. Oh, okay. All right. Fine. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's a problem in the church, you know, um, that uh, if people would follow canon law, all would be well. You know, I wondered in my in my um, of all of all things in my life as a priest, early on in my um, my priestly life, to be sent to study canon law, I was scratching my head, why, huh? why, why am I doing this? You know, well, many years later, I realized, like, oh my God, we need the church needs to follow canon law, you know, because at a time of confusion, when people are confused about basic teachings of the church, canon law at least tells you what you're supposed to do so that people's rights are respected. Okay, moving on. Um, okay, and that's, that's the end of, uh, really, there's very little you need to know about, uh, about offices per se, okay, in that section, just what I mentioned. Uh, we'll skip prescription, canons 197 and 199, that's about the period of time that, um, elapses after uh, something has happened within which you must act. So typically uh, for a, um, a crime, uh, again, the um, sex abuse of a minor, there's a certain period of time within which a person needs to report that, right? Um, and, uh, well, you know, this, this holds in civil law as well. This is the whole problem of the Child Victims Act, right? That, um, that uh, after many years, fighting for this uh, in the legislature, they decided that they would um, that they would suspend uh, prescription, um, what's the term of civil law? Statute of limitation. Statute of limitation. Yeah, for um, for a period of, first it was one year, then it was another year, and so on and so forth. You know, so, uh, and uh, Cardinal Egan was also a civil lawyer, he was a canon lawyer and a civil lawyer, and he pointed out, maybe you could illustrate this or elucidate this for us, uh, that um, that that's really bad law. There's a reason for having a statute of limitations because, because people's uh, memories can get faulty after 20 or 30 years. You know, uh, witnesses disappear and so on and so forth. It becomes you know my word against your word. Right? But basically, that's the reason. You know? So um, anyway, so that's what prescription is in canon law as well as in, as in civil law. Um, and even in canon law, when we were dealing with these sex abuse cases where bishops had, instead of following canon law, they had moved guys around from parish to parish, and then they had molested kids in one one parish after another. Um, the prescription had expired, statute of limitations had expired, but the um, uh, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith would would, um, would allow, would, would suspend prescription in cases like that, um, because it was such a mess. Okay. Um, Anyway, just so you know what that is, you don't need to know that for an exam. The same with computation of time. This, this is very interesting. Now, this is the, the end of this um, book one. The church uh, officially has a different way of computing time from what we, we normally do. Um, uh, typically, it doesn't make a difference. You know? But... Um, 
the there might be situations where it comes up uh, you, we have what's called I'm not going to require that you know this so don't worry about it but just so you you've heard this um, there we have continuous time versus uh, useful time right and I was dealing with this all the time in the tribunal so um, we would we would send a letter to somebody and the person was required to respond within 15 days um, well 50 it was 15 days not of continuous time but 15 days of useful time so to, to the 15 days we would add weekends time for letters to go back and forth and so forth you know um, that's the difference between, between useful and, um, and continuous time and also um, the way you compute uh, days and weeks uh, it gets a little bit different but um, if you just follow the normal way of computing time, uh, if you get a, a canonical document, you follow the normal way of computing time, uh, and it's continuous time, you, you won't be off by more than a day or two, so I wouldn't worry about it too much. Okay? Uh, if it comes to that, you can ask a canon lawyer, but um, I'm not going to require you to know this. It's really, it's really getting down to the weeds. Um, okay, so that's book one. More or less. I mean, it's just a few, a few aspects of, of book one. Obviously, we skipped uh, big parts of, of book one. And as I said, in these different canons, where I say all you need to know in this canon is this, you know, then just focus on that. Otherwise, you get gets really, really complicated. Now we'll get to book two, which I think you're going to find a lot more interesting. Um, and the introduction to this was written by uh, Father Robert Caslin, um, who was the dean of the Canon Law um, School at um, a faculty at uh, Catholic University until he he died at a, a fairly early age a few years ago. And he was very helpful to me in a number of ways, uh, including about stuff that has to do with uh, uh, the seminary. He was very helpful uh, about uh, stuff about confidentiality uh, for students and so on and so forth. So. Um, Robert Caslin. Now, this is this book too is a wonderful production. Uh, this is this is new stuff. A lot of this is just new stuff, and, and it's all out of Vatican too. And it's just it's just wonderful. You can meditate on this and preach on it. Also, uh, I find myself preaching on this. Uh, the people of God. The very notion. Uh, the, the, the title um, uh, of this uh, uh, of this book comes from the Second Vatican Council, the People of God, and that in turn is a reference, first and foremost, to the Old Testament. You know, uh, the idea of the people of God being um, we, we think of Moses leading God's people through the desert, you know, and that's an image of God's people through time, right, being led by the Lord through time, the people of God. Um, uh, it's a, the title itself is wonderful, and uh, the way this is, this first part is divided is uh, it, it, uh, it talks about all the Christian faithful in general. Then it then it focuses first and foremost on the laity. Okay, this is a reverse of what it was before. The laity come first because you and I, once you're ordained, ordained persons. Are, are at the service of the laity. Remember yesterday's gospel, right? We are here to serve. So the laity come first, uh, and then come uh, and then come clerics, and then come religious. You know, religious are both clerics and and laity, but we'll get into that, right? Um, so the Christian faithful. This is all of us. Canon two hundred four is an important and a beautiful canon. 
Um, the Christian faithful are those who, in as much as they have been incorporated in Christ through baptism, have been constituted as the people of God. For this reason, made sharers in their own way in Christ's priestly, prophetic, and royal function, they are called to exercise the mission which God has entrusted to the church to fulfill in the world in accordance with the condition property of each. The church, this church constituted and organized um, in this world as a society subsists in the Catholic Church, governed by the successor of Peter and the bishops in communion with him. It's a beautiful canon. Um, obviously, you could, this is a whole course right here, um, and a whole course in ecclesiology. Um, so we, we can't get into this in detail, but who are the Christian faithful? This book, this code, it's all about the Christian faithful. Who are they? Um, they, first of all, have been incorporated in Christ through baptism. Remember, we saw earlier, how do you become a person, a, 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 a person in canon law? Uh, remember that? And it's through baptism. Remember? Okay, so they are they're incorporated in Christ through baptism, and they have been constituted together as the people of God. And for this reason, made shares in their own way, everyone does this in a different way, in Christ's priestly, prophetic, and royal function. When you do baptisms, uh, you will be baptizing people you know, as a priest, prophet, and king, and you'll be preaching about that, I hope, right? So for this reason, made shares in their own way in Christ's priestly, prophetic, and royal function, but in their own way. So everyone does this in a different way. You know, uh, the way um, I exercise my priestly function is different from the way uh, someone who's working in, in, in a finance office does. But we're both exercising the priestly function of the people of God, right? Prophetic, you know, I can exercise my prophetic function by uh, typically getting up in the pulpit. You know, uh, most people exercise their prophetic function by leading lives of prophetic witness. Um, but we all, all in different ways, but, but still all exercise these functions, priestly, prophetic, and royal functions that, that uh, we're bringing about, we're, we're instruments in which the kingdom of God uh, happens. Um, and the people, that, and then the Christian faithful that are, are called to exercise the mission which God has entrusted to the church to fulfill in the world. So together, we're doing this, everyone in his own way doesn't matter whether you're a professional God person like me wearing a collar or, or uh, most of you guys are wearing a collar or, or working for the church, whatever it is. Um, it, we do it in, in, in our own way, but we are, we are uh, fulfilling in the world um, the mission God has entrusted to the church, right? which is to proclaim the gospel to every creature, etc. Would this include a... a, a baptized in other Christian churches? Well, that gets to, to paragraph two. This church constituted and organized in this world as a society, so it's not some uh, some vague spiritual thing, right? It, it's, a, it's a real society with people who are in, are in charge of things and people who have offices and all that. It's constituted and organized as one as a society subsists in the Catholic Church governed by the successor of Peter and the bishops in communion with him. That word subsists in, again, this is a whole course in ecclesiology, all right? Um, and it, you'd be better off asking um, a dogmatic theologian, what does the word subsist in mean in, in this canon? Because this comes right out of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, it doesn't exactly equate the church 
Catholic Church, but it kind of basically does, you know. So, um, uh, so it, it it fudges uh, your question a little bit because um, elements of the Catholic Church uh, of the Catholic Church has, has the fullness of the Church. Elements of the of of the Church. Um, uh, exist uh, in in other denominations, right? Um, so you know, other denominations have sacred scripture, for instance. Um, uh, some of them might even have valid Eucharist, you know, a few of them. But the the, the Holy Communion services they do have have some grace connected with them somehow. So elements, you know, elements, but it's not the fullness of the church, you know. Um, anyway, that that's a theological question that we can't get into here. You know? but, um, it's a fascinating question. So right away, you see the radical equality of all, of all believers. We, we're all in this together. We're all exercising the priestly, prophetic, and royal function of Christ uh, all in different and complementary ways, and all together working to bring it uh, to uh, fulfill the mission which God has entrusted to the church to fulfill in the world. Okay. Um, yeah, and then that that word subsists. That that's a real head scratcher. Yeah. Um, why do they not just say exists instead of subsists? Because of this fact that elements of the church exist in other denominations. I mean, uh, other denominations have baptism. You know, which means all that it means, you know, uh, the person's transformation and so forth. Okay, Canon 205. Uh, those baptized are fully in the communion of the Catholic Church in this earth who are joined with Christ in its visible structure by the bonds of the profession of faith, the sacraments, and ecclesiastical governance. So full communion, that's required uh, for certain things, uh, certainly to, to be a deacon, you know. Um, um, so to be in full communion, you're joined uh, to the Catholic Church uh, in the visible structure of the church, right? Uh, and and you're, you're joined specifically by the bonds of the profession of faith. So you you adhere publicly to what the church teaches. That's why when you're ordained, you will make a profession of faith. Um, uh, the sacraments okay, and ecclesiastical governance. So, uh, so you, you know, we obey the, the Pope and the bishops and so forth. Okay. That's full communion. Um, catechumens, um, you'll be dealing a lot with catechumens, I presume. Uh, Canon 206. Uh, th these people are not yet baptized, right? But, but they are already, by desire, kind of already part of the church, right? Um, so catechumens, that is those who ask by explicit choice under the influence of the Holy Spirit to be incorporated into the church, are joined to it in a special way. Okay, by this same desire, just as by the life of faith, hope, and charity which they lead, they are united with the church which already cherishes them as, as its own. So, you know, it kind of, they're not yet baptized, so they're not yet fully uh, reborn in Christ, but they almost already have baptism of desire. You know, it, it, it says this. Um, by the same desire to be incorporated into the church, uh, and by the leading lives of faith, hope, and charity, they are united with. They are already united with the church. The church already cherishes them as its own. Um, 
and the church has a special care for catechumens while it invites them to lead a life of the gospel and introduces them to the celebration of sacred rites. It already grants them various prerogatives which are proper to Christians, like Christian burial and things like that. Okay. All right. Um, Canon 207, a basic distinction. By divine institution, there are among the Christian faithful in the church sacred ministers, who in law are also called clerics. The other members of the Christian faith are called laypersons. And then you have um, religious, number two. Those are, there are members of the Christian faithful from both these groups who, through the profession of the evangelical councils by means of vows or other sacred bonds recognized and sanctioned by the church, are consecrated to God in their own special way and contribute to the salvific mission of the church. Although their state does not belong to the hierarchical structure of the church, it nevertheless belongs to its life and holiness. Uh, you don't have to know this in any detail. All you need to know about religious for our purposes is that religious, you don't have, uh, they're not separate from uh, from clerics and, lay, and, and laity. Uh, religious are made up of both clerics and laity, you know, like the Franciscans, you know, would have Franciscan priests, Franciscan brothers, you know, they're all Franciscans, they're all religious, some are, are, um, are, are clerics, some are lay people. So it's funny to talk in those terms, but you know, a, a beautiful religious sister in a full habit with a big pair of rosary beads and all that, and uh, in, uh, in her convent in adoration of Blessed Sacrament, is a layperson technically, you know, um, uh, in the sense that she's not ordained. So the basic distinction is between the ordained and and the laity. You know? um, that's all you need to know for our purposes. Now. Uh, we get to Title One now, so those are introductory canons. Title One is the obligations and rights of all the Christian faithful. So again, from the beginning, this book has been lumping us all together. All right, we're all uh, incorporated into Christ by baptism. We all share in His priestly, prophetic, um, um, what was the other one? <laughs> priestly, prophetic, and royal um, and, and royal mission, each in our own way. Right. So it's it's the radical quality of all believers. And it goes on to, to speak about uh, in general about everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're a cleric, whether you're a layperson, or religious, whatever. Uh, this is true for all of us. And some of these are very important. Um, some of these canons. Um, and a 208, a general canon that is very, very important for just for our own attitude. From their rebirth in Christ, there exists among all the Christian faithful a true equality regarding dignity and action by which they all cooperate in the building up of the body of Christ according to each one's own condition and function. All right, so uh, again, this is what we've seen from the beginning now with these can canons in, in book two. There's this radical equality. We're all in this together. We all share the threefold function of Christ. Uh, we all are working together to fulfill the mission of the church. Uh, and we all do it in, in, in our own way. And because of that, there is a true equality regarding dignity and action. Okay, it doesn't matter whether um, you know you're working in an office or you're um, you know you're a garbage collector or, or you're a pope. There's uh, there's this radical equality uh, among all the believers. It's important to remember. Um, we're all at the service of of Christ, the service of the church. Um, Canon uh, 209 is a general canon. Christian faithful, even in their own manner of acting, are always obliged to maintain communion with the church. 
and with great diligence they are to fulfill the duties which they owe to the universal church, the particular church to which they belong, according to the prescripts of the law. Uh, just a general canon. You don't really need to know this because it's it's just so general. Um, but uh, but the, the 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 basic uh, idea is, you know, once you're baptized into Christ, that's it. You know, you are you're a member of the church, and you can't, you know, um, in your daily actions act as a member of the church and then do something against the church, right? Um, so don't worry about Canon 209 in terms of quizzes or anything, but just uh, that basic statement. Canon 210, Canon 210 is the most important canon in the entire code of canon law. All right, remember this. I've asked this at quizzes and people don't remember. If you don't remember this, you have no business <laughs> getting ordained because um, this is what we, we need to uh, be living and we need to be preaching about all the time. Uh, can it, and this comes right out of Lumen Gentium uh, number 41. Canon 210, all the Christian faithful must direct their efforts to lead a holy life and to promote the growth of the church and its continual sanctification according to their own condition. The universal call to holiness, okay? That is the heart of the Second Vatican Council, um, and that is that is really the heart of the code of canon law. Okay, so this is in that sense this is the most important canon in the whole code of canon law. All the Christian faithful must lead must direct their efforts to lead a holy life, and in doing that, we're promoting the growth of the church. Okay, and of course we do that. We uh, direct our efforts to lead a holy life according to our own condition. So a housewife with five kids is. Uh, leading a holy life there uh, in, in her role as a housewife and a mother of five kids. Whatever one is doing, one is called to, one is called to be a saint right there. Okay? So it doesn't matter whether you get ordained to something or you become religious, whatever. You are called to lead a holy life wherever you are. Okay. Canon 2.10. Uh, canon 2.11. Also, all these are they're beautiful canons uh, that... that uh, they're great to meditate on and even preach about. Um, and in 2.11, all the Christian faithful have the duty and right to work so that the divine message of salvation more and more reaches all people in every age and in every land. So we're all in this together. Uh, and it's it's the missionary mentality that we should all have. You know, um, It's not up to... Uh, uh, you know, bishops and priests and religious to, to be, um, and, and deacons for that matter, to be uh, preaching the gospel. Uh, it's, it's up to everybody, you know, to be setting a, a prophetic, uh, living a prophetic life, if, uh, at the very least. Um, at the very least, it's the most important thing one can do. So, because um, that's the basic charge given to the church, proclaim the gospel to all nations. So we need to work, uh, we have the duty, the right to work so that the divine message of salvation just spreads more and more. That's our basic missionary function as, as the church. <clears throat> uh, Canon 2.12, conscious of their own responsibility, the Christian faith are bound to follow with Christian obedience those things which the sacred pastors, inasmuch as they represent Christ, declare as teachers of the faith or establish as rulers of, um, of the church. We can't get into this in any detail at all. Um, it's, it's a vexed topic, especially when, when if you have a, a bishop, say, who's kind of a little bit off, or maybe a lot off, uh, and teaching something that has you scratching your head, and maybe it's just wrong and so forth. Uh, when is a bishop uh, teaching authentically? Um, the, the, that's 
a question for other for other courses. Uh, we don't have time to get into that here. But generally, um, the Christian faith are bound to follow with Christian obedience uh, those things which the sacred pastors declare as teachers of the faith, right? Or establishes rulers of the church. So generally, we are to obey um, the, uh, the the sacred pastors, by which they mean primarily bishops. Uh, Canon 212 number two is uh, is is important um, for people to, to know um, because sometimes they don't think they can do this. The Christian faithful are free uh, to make known to the pastors of the church their needs, especially spiritual ones, and their desires. Um, then um, let's not get into number three here because that's uh, getting into the weeds again. Uh, it's it's fascinating stuff. Uh, that um, uh, people with certain competence, knowledge, and so forth have the right and sometimes a duty to uh, give their opinion to um, the sacred pastors, which is not always well received, but that's something else. Okay. Um, uh, so don't worry about number three, but certainly um, Canon 212 um, number one and Canon 212 number two are basic canons. Rights and the obligations of everybody when it comes to the, um, the relationship to the pastors. Canon 213 is a is a, a, a general um, principle that is very very important um, be, because sometimes this right is violated. The Christian faith will have the right to receive assistance from the sacred pastors out of the spiritual goods of the church, especially the word of God and the sacraments. The people have a right to that. Okay? Uh, it's not up to the pastor to decide, you know, I really don't like hearing confessions. I'm, you know, I'm just going to skip it. You know? um, no, the people have the right to receive the sacraments, you know, um, and, and the spiritual riches of the church. Um, all of it, you know, um, especially if, if there's something that people want, uh, that really nourishes them, and the pastor doesn't feel like doing it. You know, a, a new pastor, for instance, could come into a parish, as has happened, where they will have um, a lot of exposition of the Blessed Sacrament, and the pastor has problems with the Blessed Sacrament. And, you know, that's happened, you know, um, and decides to get rid of this, you know, or it just can't be bothered. Hey, you know, hey, you're violating people's rights here. You know, so people have a, have a right to these things. Um, uh, that's what, that's what we're there for. Uh, whether you're a deacon, a priest, uh, or a layperson in a parish, you, uh, people have um, have have a right to the spiritual goods of the church. Precisely why we're there. Um, Canon two fourteen. The Christian faithful have the right to worship God according to the prescripts of their own right. We've studied all these different rights, right? Right. Uh, approved by legitimate pastors of the church and to follow their own form of spiritual life so long as it's consonant with the doctrine of the church. All right, so uh, certainly the different rights, Byzantine right and so on and so forth, uh, people have a right to those rights, uh, but also uh, their own form of spiritual life uh, as long as it's consonant with the doctrine of the church. So if someone is a third order Franciscan and the pastor doesn't really like the Franciscans, uh, well, it's too bad. The person has the right to, to live that way. That's their spirituality. Um, again, these are general but very important uh, canons. Um, a right of association and assembly. This gets bishops and pastors nervous. 
Uh, the Christian faithful, Canon 215, the Christian faithful are at liberty freely to found and direct associations for purposes of charity or piety or for promotion of the Christian vocation in the world and to hold meetings for the common pursuit of these purposes. There's a, it's a basic right um, to, uh, to found direct these associations, whatever they might be. Um, prayer group, uh, some kind of a group that, that uh, brings food to the poor, whatever it might be, uh, promotion of Christian vocations in the world, and they have the right to pursue, to hold meetings with the common pursuit of these purposes. It's a basic right. So a bishop, uh, all things being equal, a bishop can't trample on those rights. Um, there, uh, <laughs> well, this is kind of going out on a limb, but you know the controversial um, organization um, Church Militant? Yes. Everybody knows about Church Militant, right? Has anybody not heard of Church Militant? You know? um, and you, you've not heard of him? Oh, really? Cortex. Uh, he studied here. Pardon? He, yeah, he was in the. He was here at the same time as when Senior Greg Mustatuolo, who was the Vicar General, uh, Michael. What's his name? Michael Boris, right? Anyway, the bishops uh, are having their annual meeting um, in November in Washington. In yeah, in Baltimore, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, so Tremilitical Voris, uh, the head of it, uh, wants to have a, a meeting of his own, I guess, right? Was that it? Uh, or an assembly something? something? He's taking a protest outside. He wanted to have a protest. Yeah, okay. So it's, it's a bit more than a meeting. I thought he wanted to have a meeting of some kind. Yes. Yeah, so, um, anyway, so it's a protest of some kind. So the bishops, the head of the bishops' conference, went to officials in, in Baltimore, I guess it was, and said you can't you can't allow church militants to have a meeting because there's a potential for violence. Now, you know, church militant is is a very outspoken group, but there's no violence. They're 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 uh, they're they're militant Catholics. I mean, they're they're, they're devout Catholics. You know, um, so there's nothing about violence there. And um, and the, the uh, uh, at, at first, they got somebody um, in the in the, church, in the um, city government to side with them, but they took it to court and so forth. And of, and of course, the, the right—it's a basic American right of public assembly—was um, upheld. But it's also an ecclesiastical right. You know, uh, you don't like it, but they have a right to that. They have a right to that. You know, um, as as long as they're—I mean, it's complicated with that particular group. You know, uh, as long as they're not uh, doing anything that's contrary to uh, to doctrine, uh, as long as they're not saying anything that's disrespectful to the church itself, to, to offices in the church, and so on and so forth. So they, you know, kind of. It's his his biggest thing is not going against people like politicians like Pelosi and Biden regarding abortion. Sorry. His biggest thing is going against politicians like Pelosi and Biden. Who claim to be Catholic, but oh, right. pro yeah. abortion. Oh, yeah, Church Miller is upset that the bishops aren't doing anything about that. Yeah, well, that, I am. That's why they have this protest. Yeah, yeah, so anyway. But there's a basic right of uh, right of association. <clears throat> that's the thing. Um, the, um, there was a time um, when Opus Dei, you know, you've heard of Opus Dei, right, was, was considered to be um, uh, controversial. You know, now they're very much in favor, I think, with uh, a lot of bishops and so forth. But there was a time when they were considered to be out of favor. Um, and there were bishops who would prohibit priests from um, uh, from going to days of recollection that uh, Opus Dei gave and so forth. That's that's illegal. They, you can't, you know, if, uh, again, if, if um, 
you as a deacon or a priest, whatever, you know, you want to, maybe you have a Benedictine kind of spirituality and you want to go to a meeting of like-minded people and there's a Benedictine monk who comes and so forth. And Bishop doesn't like that. It's too bad. You have that right. We have the right to meet, a basic right. Now, you don't have a meet, you don't have a right to meet and plot against the Bishop, you know, or you don't have a right to meet and plot against challenging teachings of the church, but there's a basic right of association in the church. Canon 216, we won't get into this in any detail. There are all sorts of activities that one can undertake in the church, but the, and you have a right to do these things, okay? So you have a right to Catholic action of all kinds, you know, whether it's feeding the poor or teaching the faith or whatever it is. But to have the official stamp of approval and for the name of your organization to be called Catholic, you need the consent of competent ecclesiastical authority. So Catholics for a free choice, I don't know if they still exist anymore. It was a couple of people with a copy machine who said that they represented many Catholics and they didn't, it was just themselves, you know, but they were, they pretended to be Catholics who were against the teaching of the church on abortion and so forth, you know. Well, the use of that word Catholic, even if it were not so outrageous because of the organization, the use of the word Catholic is illegal anyway, because they don't have the authority of the church to do that. Okay, again, these are general canons, we're not going to get into them in any detail, Canon 217. Christian faith will have a right to a Christian education, basically, right? It's a basic right, and people need that in order to fulfill their vocation. So when you're in a parish, and you're dealing with adults who don't, you know, don't know what the Holy Eucharist is, or don't know whatever, they have a right to education, certainly the young people as well, you know, and it's in order for them to be able to live their own faith, as well as fulfill their mission in the world. So again, you don't need that in any detail, just be aware of, to be aware of this. Don't worry about Canon 218, scholarly inquiry, don't worry about that. Canon 219, only Christian faith will have a right to be free from any kind of coercion, choosing a state of life, whether it's marriage or a priesthood or whatever it might be, or whether you can fortunately be a deacon if you don't want to be. Canon 220, though, so those are all general, you don't have to worry about them, but Canon 220, you need to know, this is very, very important, because it's violated a lot these days. No one is permitted to harm illegitimately the good reputation which a person possesses, nor to injure the right of any person to protect his or her own privacy. Very, very important canon. It's natural law. You think it would be obvious, but it's violated all the time. It's going on, you know, where do we start, you know, when a priest is falsely accused? I have a, I'm thinking right now of a priest friend of mine who was falsely accused. And this was not in any of our dioceses, a different part of the country. This priest had actually moved on from the diocese where he was. He had joined a religious community in Europe, a very fine religious community in Europe. And his superior found out that one day, 
uh, officials of his, of, of, or an official, I guess, of his previous diocese, uh, went into a parish where he had been assigned and announced that uh, we have an accusation against Father so-and-so um, uh, that he has done something, in this case it was against a girl, um, and, um, and, and so we have taken proper action and so forth. We invite anyone else who wants to make an accusation to come forward. Uh, and so they publicly maligned him. Two weeks later, the woman recanted. She said she'd made up the whole thing, you know. And the, and the diocese did nothing to uh, to repair the damage they had done to his reputation. Now he, he was in Europe; it didn't matter that much, I, I suppose. But they had publicly maligned him. They had damaged his reputation. You know. Um, I was talking to a priest yesterday who was falsely accused. Um, and uh, uh, in this case, there's a priest from the Archdiocese of New York, and Cardinal Dolan, uh, he said, was very, very supportive and so forth. So uh, um, there's an accusation. I don't know if he ever was taken out of the parish, but he's, if he, if he was, it was very briefly because he's back there in the parish now. And, and he said, yeah, uh, the Cardinal supported me, everyone supported me, but my reputation is ruined. You know? Well, yes and no. You know, I mean, uh, in this case, I think, the archdiocese did what it could to protect his reputation. So this is going on a lot. Uh, that that uh, people are being uh, people's reputations are being publicly destroyed. Uh, also, a person has a basic right to privacy. Um, this is a con uh, an item of controversy among um, uh, with, in, in seminaries. Like, what kind? How much of a right do we have to psychological reports? You know, can we force a seminarian? Um, to, to uh, you know, say we don't like the fact that he's uh, showing up late for morning prayer or something, you know, and you know, we think he has a problem. Do we have the right to uh, compel him to go for psychological counseling and then, and then to sign a waiver uh, allowing the, the counselor to uh, give a report to the rector, to his academic advisor, maybe his bishop or whatever? Do we have a right to require that? No, we don't actually. You know, which uh, uh, which has uh, some bishops upset because they want to force any seminary that they, they they want to to go for psychological counseling with with uh, reports sent to the bishop and given to all sorts of people in the diocese. That's all illegal. It's a violation of Canon 220. It's a violation of um, norms for seminaries. So we have to be very careful in this day and age, as we know. The right to privacy is something that's under attack just in general in our in our culture. So we have to be careful of these things. All right. So uh, we'll leave off there and we'll meet in uh, what ten minutes, fifteen minutes, twenty five. No, no, twenty five after no later than eight thirty. Okay. Nine here. Ten. Doctor Anthony isn't here. So. He's on. He's on. Yeah, but he's not here. He's right. I'm just looking. What's he's being special tonight? All right. One, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, eight, nine, eight, ten in this room.
guys on Zoom. Uh, so, Rock, you're here? Rock is here. Okay. Christopher Greer. Bottom right. Right. Okay. There you are. Jackie, Joseph. I think you're here. Oh, you're right there. Right in front of me. Okay. Sorry. George, James, Ian, yeah, Vince, yeah, you're here, okay, and then uh, Dr. Williams is here, okay, all right, good, all right, we're all here. Okay, so Canon 220, as I mentioned, is very important. The, um, uh, the right to a, a person has the right to his good reputation and his right to privacy. Very important canon. Um, <clears throat> a general canon about the rights that people have, this came up uh, before. They have a right to uh, vindicate and defend their rights. The Christian faithful can legitimately vindicate and defend the rights which they possess in the church in the competent ecclesiastical form according to the norm of law. And, there, and the church has many ways of, of um, appealing a decision, for instance, or protecting one's rights in general. Um, they, but the problem is they have to be respected. Um, and law has to be respected. Um, if they are summoned to a trial by a competent authority, the Christian faith will also have the right to be judged according to the prescripts of the law applied with equity. Again, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's natural law, it's something that should be respected, but it has to be stated, unfortunately, because of problems, right? Um, the goals of the Christian faith will have the right not to be punished with canonical penalties, except according to the norm of law. So if the bishop doesn't like, doesn't like you for some reason, he can't say you're excommunicated for no reason, right? Uh, uh, penalties have to be inflicted, uh, cannot be inflicted, uh, except according to the norm of law. Um, now, okay, these are just quickies here, um, just general uh, responsibilities that everyone has. Canon 222, Christian faithful are obliged to assist with the needs of the church, so that the church has what is necessary for divine worship, for the works of the apostles of charity, and for the support of ministers. It doesn't say... Uh, Christian faithful are invited, are urged. It says they are obliged. It's an obligation, and sometimes we don't uh, uh, we don't want to say it in so many words. Usually, we don't want to say it in so many words, but it's an obligation. You know, I mean, the, it's the, we're talking about the Church of Christ. You know, it's it's the we're talking about the Kingdom of God. Uh, we have the obligation to um, uh, to make sure as, as best we can with our own resources that the church has a wherewithal to do what it's, it's called to do you know uh, we have an increased uh giving campaign that uh, the new um uh, administrator started in uh um, parish and uh, you know how those things go uh some people have goodwill but you get a lot of pushback you know oh the church is so rich the church has all this money and 
Yeah. And now, oh, you know, you're just going to take that and give it to the archdiocese so they can pay uh, all these lawyers and so on and so forth. Um, but it's a basic obligation, obligation we all have to support the church. They are also obliged to promote social justice and mindful of the precept of the Lord to assist the poor from their own resources. So these are all obligations. Okay. Um, uh, so 223 is so general that for our purposes, let's not worry about it. You can skip Canon 223. Uh, and that, so that basically is the, the general rights and obligations of all the Christian faithful. Now we get specifically to the lay Christian faith. And uh, in this day and age, um, we have an obligation to help the lay Christian people understand their particular vocation. There's a general vocation that everyone has, not just uh, clerics and religious, but everyone has the obligation to seek holiness, the, the, the uh, universal call to holiness. That's everyone's obligation to, 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 to seek sanctity, to seek to become a saint. Um, but there's a specific way of going about that that affects most members of the church, uh, namely the laity. Um, <clears throat> so Canon 224, in addition to those obligations and rights which are common to all the Christian faithful and those which are established in other canons, lay Christian faithful are bound by the obligations plus the rights which are enumerated in the canons of this title. So we have these in addition to the general um, obligations are common to all the Christian faithful. Now, Canon 225 is important to understand, and it's something um, you'll need to preach about uh, and, and teach about when you have the opportunity. Uh, the mission of the laity, and this is the mission of most people in the church, Canon 225, since, since like all the Christian faithful, lay persons are designated by God for the apostolate through baptism and confirmation, right, right away. Since like all the Christian faithful, whether they're clerics, religious, whatever, since like all the Christian faithful, lay persons are designated by God for the apostolate, for baptism and confirmation. So it's not an option. When, when somebody is baptized and, and certainly also confirmed, that person has an obligation to work for, towards the ends of the church. And usually it's by what they're doing in their daily lives, by doing it well as, as witnesses to Christ. So, in addition, they are bound by the general obligation and possess the right as individuals or joined in associations to work so the divine message of salvation is made known and accepted by all persons everywhere in the world. This obligation is even more compelling in those circumstances which only through them can people hear the gospel and know Christ. Uh, according to each one's own condition, they are also bound by a particular duty to imbue and perfect the order of temporal affairs with the spirit of the gospel and thus to give witness to Christ, especially in carrying out these same affairs and exercising secular functions. Uh, wouldn't it be great if the um, Catholics in public life would obey canon law, <laughs> would obey God's law, right? <laughs> Can you imagine, you know, if, if we had um, exemplary Catholics in these positions we were just talking about, if we had a, a president of the United States who was actually, um, you know, not as as Michael Voris calls him, not a fake fake Catholic Joe Biden, <laughs> but he's actually living his faith, you know, um, and same with the Speaker of the House and so forth. Um, but um, they have, um, but they have uh, the. Um, the, the obligation and the right, this is the, specific to the laity, to works of the divine message of salvation is made known and accepted by all persons everywhere in the world. 
So, um, you know, clerics and religious typically can't go into the halls of Congress um, uh, or into the White House or State House or, uh, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but, um, but lay people can and must. And so this obligation is even more compelling in those circumstances. Only through them can people hear the gospel and know Christ. And that's a, an extremely important witness today. We have to, this is our job as, as people in parochial ministry, to uh, encourage the people um, to, to be doing that, wherever, wherever they are, whether it's in offices or classrooms or um, hospitals, wherever they are. Um, and according to each one's own condition, they are also bound by a particular duty to imbue and perfect the order of temporal affairs with the spirit of the gospel. And thus to give witness to Christ, especially in carrying out these same affairs and exercising secular functions. Um, so, again, um, it's it's a matter of witnessing to, witnessing to Christ wherever one is, and um, and working uh, in whatever one does. Say, say you're a doctor, you know, um, to uh, to be working to imbue. Uh, your 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 practice and the hospital rework, whatever it is, with the spirit of the gospel or whatever it is that you're doing, that's a particular obligation that lay people have, and that comes from the the great commission that our Lord gives to the church at the end of the Gospel of Saint Matthew: Go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature, to every creature, and, and it is mostly lay people who do that. Okay, and we and we have to help them to be aware of that. You know, um, because so many people think the obligation of lay people is um, at best, and a lot of people don't even think this, the obligation of lay people is to, you know, as we used to say, pay, pray, and obey, right? Um, you know, just support the church and show up for mass and that's it. Um, but the idea that, uh, and, and, and they, and so many lay people, as we all know from parochial ministry, think about the church as us, and I go to the church to get stuff, you know, to feel better about my life and whatever else it might be, um, and, and maybe get to heaven, <laughs> you know, and, and that's it. I use the church for my own purposes, and I go out and I do my own thing, and, and that has nothing to do with the church. And so the Second Vatican Council called for a sea change in that understanding, and this is our responsibility, to help the lay people to, to see <laughs> this sea change, to see that they are the ones primarily who are called to proclaim the gospel. Uh, that that's that's incumbent upon lady first and foremost because they're the ones who can go out. Our Lord said, "Go out into the whole world and preach the gospel." They're the ones who go out into the world. You know, clerics by and large stick around in the sanctuary, but there we send them out. Ite misa est, right? Go the mass is ended. What does that word mass come from? Misa est. The congregation is sent. Misa is sent. We get the word missionary from that. The congregation is sent. The mass itself is ascending out of the congregation into the world to proclaim the gospel. That, and how many lay people understand that? Right? So this is a very, very serious obligation that all of us have. You know, um, as I said, in preaching, the way you live, live your lives and so forth. And most of you guys, the ones who are going to become deacons, are you're, you're kind of you have a foot in both worlds at the moment, right? Because uh, you're 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 laymen living in the world, um, uh, obligated by what we're we're talking about. But soon you will, God willing, you will become clerics, which means you kind of jump to the other side, 
and suddenly you will no longer be a lay person, but you will be a cleric called to empower lay people to go out into the world. At the same time, though, as even though you're clerics, you have jobs in the world. So, uh, so you still, um, to that extent, you still have the obligations of lay people in the world. But you will, you will be fundamentally changed. You will be a cleric, and your primary job will be to empower the lay people to go out, uh, proclaim the gospel to all creation. So, um, so that's that's Canon 225. Uh, Canon 226, according to their own vocation, those who live in a marital state are bound by a special duty to work through marriage and defend the will of the people of God because they have given life to their children. And you've probably heard this before, but it's very important. Parents have a most grave obligation and possess the right to educate them. Therefore, it is for Christian parents particularly to take care of the Christian education of their children according to the doctrine handed on by the church. And so uh, it is a primary responsibility of the parents um, they have the most grave obligation because that's the right to educate them. And it just says educate them. It, does, it doesn't say educate them in the faith. It says educate them. And, of course, we know what's going on in famous Loudoun County in Virginia. And potential spam. Okay, let's skip that. So, um, uh, so the parents have the base, have the fundamental right, the primary right to educate their children. That's why I think what's going on with some of these school boards, they're trying to indoctrinate young kids and, and arrest parents who object to that. You know, I think that's 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 a violation of, 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 of basic human rights. A violation oh, of national law. Yeah, yes. Yeah. They ruin the reputations. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. So. Um, Okay, but the parents have the primary responsibility also, you know, specifically for work that we do in parishes, they have the primary right and responsibility to educate their children in the faith, everything else as well, but, but specifically in the faith. Uh, and of course, most parents, not most parents, but a lot of parents don't see it that way. You know, they drop the kids off for religious aid if, if, if we're lucky and, and they leave it at that. But they have the primary responsibility, so a lot of education needs to be done in parishes for the parents of the, of the children in religious education. Um, um, okay. Uh, all right, some, some of these things are so general that I don't think we need to get into them. Um, um, you can skip Canon 227. It should be fairly obvious. Um, it should be. I mean, there's a lot behind it, but for our purposes, right? Um, <clears throat> um, lay persons, Canon 228, uh, lay persons who are found suitable or qualified to be admitted by the sacred pastors to those ecclesiastical offices and functions which they're able to exercise according to the precepts of the law. Um, lay persons who excel in necessary knowledge, prudence, and integrity are qualified to assist pastors of the church as experts and advisors, even in councils according to the normal law. So um, uh, that second part, we have professors here, right, uh, or lay persons and so forth. Um, but also lay persons who are suitable can, uh, can be admitted to certain ecclesiastical offices. So the, uh, the chancellor of the Archdiocese of New York is the layman. Uh, I think I mentioned before that we have... Uh, um, I mean, just have one, I guess it's a current time, one lay woman who is a judge on the Tribunal for the Archdiocese of New York. So lay people can, can hold certain um, offices in, in the church. Um, okay. Canon 229, we're not going to get into, um, but um, they, 
But just to know in general, I'm not going to quiz you on this, but but just to be aware of the fact that laypersons have the, op- the, the right and the obligation to acquire the knowledge of Christian doctrine that is appropriate to their capacity and, con- and condition uh, for them to be able to live in accord- according, according to this doctrine. So uh, we have a lot of work to do in just educating uh, people in the faith because uh, so many of our parishioners are not adequately educated in the faith and, and they don't really understand what it means to be living their faith except at a very rudimentary level. Um, and we'll, we'll skip the rest for now. Um, you, can, you can, I mean, you can skip that whole can. You don't, I'm not going to quit you on that, but just so you're, you hear it, you know. Um, <clears throat> and as you know, you've had experience with this yourselves already. <clears throat> Canon 230, laymen possess the age and qualifications established by decree of the Conference of Bishops can be admitted on a stable basis to the prescribed liturgical rights of the ministries of lecture and acolyte, right? You guys have all received those ministries, but no, right? Yes. You haven't received them. Lecture, yes. Lecture, I've got an acolyte. Well, you will, but um, you will be um, installed. You're installed as lectures, you'll be installed as acolytes. That's different from um, uh, delegating someone or designating someone in the parish to do to do the readings, you know, uh, even even on a regular basis, or or being a, a communion minister, right? That's not the same as an acolyte. I'm sure you've discussed this already, right? Um, uh, and, and number two says that lay persons can fulfill the function of lecture and liturgical actions by temporary designation, right? Um, they can perform other functions as well. So we need not get into that. Um, um, uh, we won't worry about Canon 230, number three. When that happens, there will be a lot of talk about it. So let's not worry about it for now. So don't worry about, again, don't worry about Canon 230. You've experienced already what you need to know about that. Um, um, the same with 231. That's just common sense, really. Um, so we'll go on to um, uh, Title Three: Sacred Ministers or Clerics. Uh, and we don't need to um, get into this in too much detail because you're you're kind of living this out. Um, uh, and most of this, of course, the uh, part of this has to do with seminary for, formation. It's focused mostly on um, seminarians who are going to become priests. Um, so you can skip all this about the requirements for uh, uh in the seminary for uh, for priests, the um, yeah. So all the self information you're living that out. So we're not we're not going to get into that. Let's get to uh, Canon 265. Canon 265, the enrollment or incarnation of clerics. That's an important uh, term to understand. Incarnation. Every cleric. So whether priest, deacon, bishop, obviously. Every cleric must be incarnated <clears throat> either in a particular church or personal prelature or an institute of consecrated life or society endowed with its faculty in such a way that unattached or transient clerics are not allowed at all. You can't have an, it's called an acephalous cleric, cleric without a head. You know, um, uh, that's, you can't have that at all. So uh, every cleric, including every deacon, has to be attached to something. All right, um, you got to have a head, so you need to be incarnated. Typically, it would be in a diocese, 
Um, some somebody might be incarnated in a religious order or something like that. But typically, for for I think all of us, you're incarnated into a diocese. You must be incarnated into a diocese. Um, how do you become incarnated? This is a very important uh, question. Uh, when I took uh, my oral comprehensive exams to get the license at Catholic University, the, the first question I was asked was, um, "How do you how do you get incarnated?" And the answer is, you get ordained a deacon. Okay, so once you're ordained a deacon, you are are already incarnated in your diocese. So Canon two sixty six through the reception of the diaconate, a person becomes a cleric. Okay, so your whole life changes once uh, that happens. Um, for the reception of the diaconate, a person becomes a cleric and is incarnated in a particular church or a personal prelature for whose service he has been um, advanced. Um, that's all you need to know from Canon 266, Canon 266 one. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, it can happen that you would want to change your incarnation. Um, this has happened to uh, known a number of deacons in particular who have changed their incarnation because they, they retired and they moved to Florida, you know, um, and so there's a process for doing that, and we're not going to get into that now, we don't, so we don't have time, but just to know that um, if you want to change your incarnation, if you want to be enrolled in a different diocese because you move, uh, that can be done, it's a whole process that we're, we're not going to get into now. Okay. Um, so we'll skip all of those canons on incarnation. Um, Then the obligations and rights of clerics. So if we go to Canon um, 273, clerics. So this includes you guys ordained once ordained deacons. Clerics are bound by a special obligation to show reverence and obedience to the Supreme Pontiff in their own ordinary. So this is above and beyond what a lay person would uh, be responsible for. Um, Canon 274. Only clerics can, take, can obtain offices for whose exercise of power of orders where the power of ecclesiastical governance is required. So I mentioned um, some of these things before, certainly being a pastor. Um, normally being a judge in a tribunal, but there's an exception for a three-judge tribunal, something like that. Um, uh, so only clerics can, can have those offices where the power of orders where the power of ecclesiastical governance is required, as, as in being a, um, a judge in a tribunal. Canon 274, um, number one. Um, and, well, just, just worry about that. Canon 274, number one. Uh, okay, you can skip um, Canon 275. Um, although, uh, again, I won't quiz you on this, but just to be aware, again, Canon 275, number two, clerics are to acknowledge and promote the mission which the laity, each for his or her part, exercises the church and in the world. Just to be aware of that, I'm not going to quiz you on that, but just to remember that for the future. Uh, Canon 276. Um, <clears throat> in leading their lives, clerics are bound in a special way to pursue holiness. Since having been consecrated to God by a new title in the reception of orders, they are dispensers of the mysteries of God in the service of his people. So we've seen there is the universal call to holiness, uh, Canon 210, uh, that uh, everyone is obliged to seek holiness, is, to, is obliged to seek to become a saint. But clerics are bound in a special way to pursue holiness. Since they've been consecrated to God, 
by a new title and they are dispensers. I love this title. It's from it's from the New Testament. They're <clears throat> they're dispensers of the mysteries of God in the service of His people. So they have a special obligation to pursue pursue holiness. Uh, how do you do that? And this is um, a canon you can really meditate on. In order to be able to pursue this perfection, number one, what are you supposed to do? The first, they are first of all to fulfill faithfully and tirelessly the duties of the pastoral ministry. That's how you pursue holiness. Um, they are to nourish their spiritual life in the twofold table of sacred scripture in the Eucharist. Priests uh, are invited, earnestly invited to offer the Eucharistic sacrifice daily, and deacons are earnestly invited. Okay, you were earnestly invited to participate in its in the uh, in the holy sacrifice of the mass daily to the extent that you can. All right, so it's an earnest invitation the church um, extends to you. Right? Um, it's something to consider seriously. I know you, know, you have very busy lives, but uh, but that uh, something that's that's the core of our lives as Catholics, and certainly the core of your life as as a cleric. Uh, priests. Um, well, I can skip the first part. Priests and deacons aspire to the present presbyter, obliged to carry the liturgy of the hours daily. Permanent deacons, however, to carry out the same, the same to the extent defined by the Conference of Bishops. I think it's more than even Right? Is that what it is, correct? Yeah. Yeah, so that's what you're, re you're required to do, okay? And the, I'm telling you, the divine office is so, so important, you know? It might only take you 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening, but it really kind of charges you, you know? Um, they are equally bound to make time for spiritual retreats according to the prescripts of a particular law. I don't know if there are any in our diocese that you're required to make retreats, but it's a good thing to try to do uh, as often as you can, at least once a year if you can. They are urged to engage in mental prayer regularly, to approach the sacrament of penance frequently, to honor the Virgin Mother of God with a particular federation, to use other common and particular means of sanctification. Now, obviously we don't have the time to get into this in detail, but fulfill your responsibilities, Sacred Scripture in the Eucharist. Try to go to, to um, Mass as often as you can, even daily Mass if you can. Um, liturgy the hours, even when it's really inconvenient, because uh, especially you guys, you only have morning and evening prayers, so that doesn't take that much time. Uh, it's so, so important. It keeps you on track. Uh, spiritual retreats if you can, and then all these other things. Just ordinary mental prayer, just talking to God, you know, spend time doing that. Going to penance frequently, you know, um, and I'm sure others have discussed this with you, to honor our Blessed Mother with particular veneration, particular veneration. She's somebody that we have to be focused on in a very, very particular way. Guys, if you're not saying the rosary every day, you're going to get yourself into trouble, okay? Uh, it's as simple as that. Say the rosary every day. You can say the rosary if you have to. You can say you can say five decades in, in under 10 minutes if you have to. You, know, you don't have to... You don't have to have a full choir and incense and be vested and all the rest. You can you can say it very quickly when you're driving to work or you're half distracted uh, walking along the street or whatever, but say it. Say it. It's very, very important. Okay. Did you have a question? I just had a brief one. It might be slightly off topic, but uh, where it shows that uh, we are obligated to pray the divine office morning and evening, the hinge hours. I've asked this question of several different priests and I keep getting different answers. So I'm not sure where to look for the true answer. The question is, if you fail to do it, you're not through a good reason, you know, you, you just don't do it. Is that considered a sin that you need to confess? Oh yeah, it is. Well, that's a serious obligation to you. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Once you're, once you're ordained. Yeah, once you're ordained. Once you're ordained. Yeah. Do you 
do you make that promise to uh, pray the divine office when you're ordained? I know, I know transitional deacons, Joe, you guys are going to be ordained. I believe they do. I think they yeah. do. That's a very, very serious obligation. Yeah. Because uh, you're, you're praying the prayer of the church. You know? um, and you don't forget, you know, you're going to go from being lay persons to being clerics. You know, you're kind of going to the other side, as it were, coming to the dark side. <laughs> but, uh, up the bright side. But, uh, yeah, but you, but you are now um, responsible for, for the church. You know, you're an official of the church. So you have to do the things the church needs to be done. You, you know, uh, you go from being, I'm sure all of you started out as volunteers in parishes, probably, you know. Um, you're going from that, where you help out Father, to being in charge yourself, to being an official of the church. And uh, that includes the official prayer of the church. That's why Mass, the extent that you can, is so important. But definitely the liturgy of the hours, um, you know, every day. And I'm telling you guys, the rosary, got to say the rosary, you know. And um, I'm, I'm repeating what Bishop Vaughn, Bishop Austin Vaughn, who was a very saintly rector of uh, this seminary, but when I began, uh, said to us uh, in a homily in October that he forgot giving when I reminded him years later. Uh, and it was uh, it was October, the month of Our Lady, and he um, and he, he was talking about the Rosary, and he said uh, the Rosary is a very flexible prayer. You can pray it um, in all sorts of sorts of circumstances. He mentioned. Uh, being, um, you know, in a, a waiting room in a hospital with family, you know, with somebody that's having surgery or, uh, or people are very, very distracted. You can pray it that way. You can pray it um, uh, when you're, you know, as I mentioned, when you're, when you're traveling, whatever it is. He said, um, it's great if you could say, you know, scriptural rosary with uh, Dr. Donaldson providing a full choir for each uh, uh, mystery and so forth. But you can also say it very, very fast if you have to. And he said um, that he himself had, had uh, uh, frequently prayed um, the rosary in, in six minutes. And he said once he even prayed five decades of the rosary in four minutes. <laughs> so that became known as the four-minute rosary homily. You know? <laughs> but the point was he was a very, very holy man. You know, The point is when you're praying the rosary, you're a, you're a young kid talking to your mom. And you can talk fast. It's okay. She knows what you're saying. So you're saying, because I've always thought that, you're saying don't fo- you don't have to focus on the mysteries? Just Well, yes, just, of course. I to the extent that you can, you do want to be focused on the mysteries. But what I'm saying is, in real life, don't use an excuse not to say the rosary because, oh, I don't have half an hour and I don't have the music playing, and I don't have this, and I don't have that, and the other thing. No, I mean, you, you try as but to try to pray the rosary as, as, as any other prayer. Uh, you try to pray it with as much recollection as you possibly can, okay. right? Uh, but what I'm saying is, if you can't, still say the rosary, okay. you know? Um, a little, <laughs> that's a little, a little thing. When I was... Um, on uh, the tribunal, uh, I learned uh, from my spiritual director to say the rosary was walk along the streets of Manhattan, which helps when you're dealing with custody of the eyes, you know, <laughs> the springtime of Manhattan, you know, so, uh, and I remember one day I was on my way to the gym, you know, and it was an upscale gym, I was in the Upper East Side at that point, it was an upscale gym, and uh, some of the ladies would wear Lululemon outfits and so forth, you know, look kind of cute and so forth. I say the rosary on my way there, 
And it's like, well, that's nice, whatever. And I, I wasn't paying that much attention. It's amazing. I, suddenly it, it wasn't a problem, you know? So, um, yeah, so it can help you in all sorts of ways. <laughs> so, hope I didn't offend anybody. But, <laughs> so, um, so Our Lady, the Rosary, um, anyway, I think you can, I, I'd like to get into some detail, but this is a good canon to, um, to contemplate and meditate on. And then, uh, well, we don't have to worry about uh, celibacy for you guys, right? Um, so we're we'll, not going to get into all of that. Um, canon 278, just a general uh, canon. We're not going to get into this. You don't have to know it for an exam or anything. But secular clerics have the right to associate with others to pursue purposes in keeping with the clerical state. Okay, so the right of association in general that we've seen for... Um, uh, for all of the faith, faithful, but in particular, secular clerics, meaning non-religious clerics, uh, secular clerics are those who belong to a diocese, right, have the right to associate with others to pursue purposes in keeping with the clerical state, the right of association. Right? Um, uh, all right, we can skip the rest of that. Canon 278, number one, is what's important. Um, Canon 279... I'm not going to quiz you on this, but, but the rest of your life will be a quiz on this. Canon 279, even after ordination to the priesthood, and I would say to the diaconate, certainly, clerics are to pursue sacred studies and are to strive after that solid doctrine founded in sacred scripture, handed on by their predecessors in common by the church, sent out especially in the documents of councils and of the Roman pontiffs. Uh, they're to avoid, to avoid profane novelties and pseudoscience. Uh, number two, they're to attend pastoral lectures held after, again, priestly, but I'd say diaconate ordination. Um, other lectures, theological meetings, conferences. Number three, they're also to acquire knowledge of other sciences, especially those which are connected with the sacred sciences, particularly insofar as such knowledge contributes to the exercise of pastoral ministry. So um, the general idea that I want, want you to get into your head is um, your education um, as a cleric never ends uh you need to keep up with things you need to be uh you know reading reading books and so forth and, and journals and, and all of the rest and even um on topics that are not directly um theological so um it's important especially if you're preaching it's important to um to be somebody who who um, who has a love for literature because that will help you preach with your preaching not just forming the words but also just the ideas, the images, and so on and so forth. You know, um, uh, music, art, um, and certainly um, uh, what we need to know about, uh, you know, current affairs and, and all of the rest. So we, we have an obligation, clerics have a particular obligation to be well-educated. It used to be, you know, and it used to be the clerics in the Middle Ages and, and until fairly recently, the clerics were really the only ones who were really educated. Now, uh, but that's an important obligation that we have. Um, okay, you can skip Canon 280. Um, don't worry about clerical remuneration and support. Uh, as permanent deacons, you usually don't have that unless you're working directly for the, uh, well, kit number three, look at that. Uh, Canon 281, number three, on page 369 in the Green Book. 281, number three. 
married deacons who devote themselves completely to ecclesiastical ministry deserve remuneration by which they are able to provide for the support of themselves and their families. Um, those who receive remuneration by reason of a civil profession which is the exercise of exercise, whoever, are to take care of the needs of themselves and families for, their, for the income derived from it. Okay, so if you're working full time for the church, then you can get paid by the church. Otherwise, you're on your own. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, most of this applies primarily to priests. Canon 282 declares it to foster simplicity of life in order to refrain from all things that have a semblance of vanity. Uh, you know, well, when you're married, you know, you, you apply, apply this as best you can to your own lives together, but you don't want to um, have sort of a, a weird kind of lifestyle either. Uh, Canon 283 doesn't really apply. Um, Canon 284, um, the general canon, is clerics are to wear a suitable ecclesiastical garb according to the norms issued by the Conference of Bishops and according to legitimate local customs. So uh, normally you don't, right? You don't wear clerical garb in certain circumstances. When I guess in hospitals, for instance, you would wear clerical garb, I think, right? Um, again, these things you don't know to, um, you don't need to know for, for quizzes or anything. Canon 285 would apply to deacons as well. Clerics are to refrain completely from all those things which are unbecoming to their state, according to the prescripts of particular law. So just be careful. You know, be, be aware of the fact that you're a cleric, you're married, you're all married, right? You're all married? Yeah. Um, you know, so you, you live a normal married lifestyle, but certain things you would avoid, you know, uh, certain kind of scandalous kinds of um, situations and so forth. Um, Right, so again, you don't need to know this for a quiz. You can skip to Canon 285. Um, Canon 285, uh, except for, I'm sorry, Canon 285, number three, clerics are forbidden to assume public offices which entail a participation in the exercise of civil power. Um, again, you don't need to know this for a quiz or anything, but um, if that comes up, uh, you better check with the bishop of your diocese uh, if you're in a situation like that, we need to assume a public office. Okay, um, uh, okay don't worry about number four. Um, yeah, because that wouldn't really apply directly to you because you're still involved in the world in that sense. Uh, same with Canon 286. Um, obviously, that applies to priests. Um, um, but Canon 287 applies to all of us, most especially clerics are at all this to foster the peace and harmony based on justice which we've observed among people. Um, and then again, the rest of you can skip. I'm not requiring any of this for quizzes. We're just kind of looking at this and get a feel for it. Um, and in 288 goes on to describe uh, actually everything we just looked at. It says these, uh, these previous canons, 284, 85, 86, 87, do not bind permanent deacons unless particular law establishes otherwise. Okay. Um, so don't worry about any of those. Um, uh, I can skip Canon 289. Yeah, that's basically it. All right. And the laws of the clerical state, we're going to skip that. We're not going to leave the clerical state. Canon 293. Um, well, just be aware, once you're ordained a deacon, you are a cleric, you know. Um, I had a, a permanent deacon down in Louisiana who... Um, uh, his, I think his wife died, and then he wanted to marry somebody else, or, or I, I forget. There's some kind of a thing with 
at least a couple of women going on and so forth. And he was an older guy. He was in his 70s. And, uh, and uh, because he was a deacon and some other complication, he would not be able to marry this woman he wanted to marry and so forth. And so he, he said, he announced that he was resigning from the diaconate. You know, so I put in my years of service, now I'm resigning. And to him, uh, being a deacon was like joining the Navy. So you, you kind of belong to this and then you can resign. Well, no, you know, he had, yeah, he had very poor formation. He wasn't formed in this, in this diocese, in this uh, seminary. Um, we'll skip personal prelatures, uh, open state and so forth. Um, uh, we don't have time for that. Um, associations of the faithful, we'll skip all of this uh, as well. We're, uh, we're, uh, associations of the Christian faithful, we skip all of that. So Canon's 298 through 329. And good. All right. Getting back on track. So the hierarchical constitution of the church. And by now, I think you kind of know uh, sort of the, the, um, uh, the, 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 the basic structure of, of the church in terms of offices in the church. So we'll go through this fairly rapidly. I'll, I'll make a few points here and there. Um, so Canon, Canon 330, so uh, we're now in this chapter one of this book, of, of, this, uh, of, this, of this section on the hierarchical constitution of the church. There's part two now, the people of God. And um, and chapter one of part two is about the Roman Pontiff and the College of Bishops. So, Canon 330, just as, so this is divine law, just as by the Lord's decision, St. Peter and the other apostles constitute one college, so in a like manner, the Roman Pontiff, the successor of Peter, and the bishops, the successors of the apostles, are united among themselves. Okay, you know that already. Right? So, about to get into that. Um, so, um, just the, the about the Pope himself, the Bishop of the Roman Church, which is called here, Canon three thirty one. Uh, the Bishop of the Roman Church, in whom continues the office given by the Lord uniquely to Peter, first of the apostles, and to be transmitted to his successors is the head of the College of Bishops, the Vicar of Christ, and the pastor of the Universal Church on Earth. By virtue of his office, he possesses supreme, full, immediate, and universal ordinary power in the church, which he is always able to exercise freely. So you've heard, I'm sure, all of these different titles given to the um, uh, given to the Holy Father. Um, in terms of canon law, in virtue of his office, he possesses supreme power, right? So there's no one, no one has high power higher than his. He has full power. Uh, it's not limited uh, in, in any case or to particular groups of persons or to particular dioceses. He has full power. It is immediate power, which means that he do, if he doesn't want to, he doesn't have to go through a bishop uh, of a diocese to deal with a person in that diocese. It's immediate power. He can directly do whatever he wants anywhere. He doesn't have to go through channels, right? Um, and universal, right? It's for the, again for the for the whole church. Ordinary power it belongs to him in virtue of the office, right? which he is always able to exercise freely. Okay? This is a great statement of faith. <coughs> we've had great popes, we've had bad popes, we've had a whole bunch of mediocre popes, uh, but the church is given the, the gift of the office of Peter by the by the Lord, and he guarantees 
that the gates of hell should not prevail against the church. Um, I'd love to get into some details. It's, it's fascinating stuff, but of course we don't have time for it. Um, Canon 332, I'd love to get into because, uh, you know, we don't know when it's going to come up. Holy Father now is in his 80s, but people are living longer these days. Who knows? But um, uh, you don't need to know this for a quiz, but just so you know, um, the Roman pontiff obtains full and supreme power in the church by his acceptance of legitimate election together with episcopal consecration. Therefore, a person elected the supreme certificate who is marked with episcopal character obtains his power from the moment of acceptance. If the person elected lacks episcopal character, however, he is to be ordained a bishop immediately. Um, so uh, I remember, so to, to be, uh, to become Pope, you need two things. You need to be a bishop, ordained a bishop, and you need to say yes, right? So if you're not already a bishop, um, you have to say yes, and then they ordain you a bishop, and as soon as you ordain a bishop, you, you are the Pope. So, but if you're already a bishop, which is usually the case, um, in recent history, it's always been the case. Um, I think it always has been the case, but anyway. Um, so typically you're a cardinal, um, always in recent centuries, it's been a cardinal, right? So um, it was a bishop. And uh, so once the cardinal says yes, then he becomes pope. So one day, uh, Cardinal Dolan um, was uh, getting ready to go over to the conclave that, that elected uh, Francis, right? And um, so he came here for a mass before he left. And you know Cardinal Dolan, he's a very jovial guy, right? Even during mass, he's very upbeat and so forth. But there was a, there were a lot of, there's a lot of talk back then that he was populate. And it made sense that he was populate. So, um, and I think he was worried. You know, like, oh my God, I don't want to do that. You know? but I think I think he was genuinely worried because he was very subdued during this mass. You know, a uh, very very serious mass. You know, I mean, mass is always serious, but you know, uh, his his demeanor was very serious. So we processed uh, the the faculty, you know, uh, and processed out with him uh, to the um, uh, to the, the front entrance under the clock, and we're all standing around, and he's coming around saying hi to each one of us and so forth. And I remember, so we would come out um, this way. So the altar was here and here's the front entrance of the seminary. So we were here in the in, in the front hall there. And the, we were all kind of around like this. And I was standing over here. The cardinal was over here talking to somebody. And he said, um, you can't see me now, I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, uh, um, Oh, I need a Latinist. Who, who's good at Latin? He said, oh, Judge Elder. And he's looking for me. Oh, and he comes over to me. He, he comes over to me and he says, so, now, what is the word? Accepto? Which means I accept. <laughs> that was on his mind, you know? I mean, he was joking. What do I say if they elect me Pope? You know, but, um, but from that moment, the, um, uh, the, the... Could he say no? Yes. Oh, sure. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, uh, a lot of guys at a lower level, a lot of guys are saying no when they're asked to become bishops. Uh, Cardinal Dawn said there's actually a vocation crisis for bishops now. Vocation <laughs> <You know? laughs> crisis for priests have gone up to the top, but there's a vocation crisis for bishops. No one wants to be a bishop. 
know, because become a bishop. You know, what does being a bishop mean now? You get you're getting sued all the time. People hate you. They're waiting for you to die. So then they're, uh, they're all they're all speculating about your successor and so forth. It's a horrible job. I've dealt with a number of bishops close up. You know, and oh, it's it's a real cross. It's a real cross. So anyway, that's how you become pope. How do you stop being pope if you if you don't like it anymore? You want to leave. Um, and 332 number two, if it happens that the Roman pontiff resigns his office, it is required for validity that the resignation is made freely and properly manifested, but, not, but not that it is accepted by anyone. So I was going over this canon. The very first semester I taught canon law here in the, in the fall of uh, 2012, right? And, um, and this was to the seminarians, and seminarians we're required to know this stuff in much more detail. You don't have to know this for the exam, but I'm just you know, just mentioning for your general knowledge. So when I was putting the exam together, just, just for laughs, I threw, I threw in a question saying, if the Pope uh, should decide to resign, who has to accept his resignation? Well, just just for laughs, you know, just put it on the, on the exam, you know? So I was on the exam and most guys got it right and so forth. That was December of 2012. Uh, two months later, he resigns. I remember, I was uh, it was early in the morning, and I was down at the Cross County Shopping Center at Blink Fitness working out. You know, um, it was very early in the morning, and because uh, I had to be back here, and I came out of the locker room, and you know, I'm walking along, along to the machines, and I, I, I saw these TV monitors, and they all had pictures of the Pope. So no, it's actually the Pope. And he said, Pope resigned. Uh, I just put it out of my head. I didn't want to do it. I went through my whole workout. But then the end of the workout was the cardio part where you're, I was at a, uh, one of those ellipticals in front of a TV that said the Pope has resigned. And they're speculating who was, who was going to succeed him. And they're immediately speculating about Cardinal Dolphin. So, <laughs> so that's how I began my day. <laughs> you know, so uh, so that, that was a little prophetic question I had on the exam. Yeah. Okay. I will not put it on your exam, so don't worry about that. Um, um, uh, you can put that on our exam, you on our exam if you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to forget, right? Um, uh, okay, 333. Um, I, I will not put this on an exam either, but just so you so you, uh, you know in general. Um, by virtue of his office, the Roman pontiff not only possesses power of the universal church, but also obtains the primacy of ordinary power over all particular churches and groups of them. So the universal church and over every, um, every diocese and so forth, and every group of dioceses. Um, and it's exercised together with the bishops. It's, it says, moreover, this primacy strengthens and protects the proper ordinary immediate power which bishops possess in the particular churches entrusted to their care. So it's a fine balancing act that's going on here. Uh, the Second Vatican Council stressed the role of the bishop in his own diocese. Uh, the bishop is in charge. He's not uh, a delegate of the Pope. He himself is the head of the church in his diocese. Uh, and, the, and the Pope works with him Ultimately, if push comes to shove, he has authority over him, but the Pope works with him to strengthen him in, in his office. Normally, the Pope is not just 
uh, you know, uh, issuing orders to the bishop who then who then uh, kind of carries out his orders as an underling. But the bishop himself is responsible for his uh, his own diocese. Right? Um, uh, okay, uh, let's skip number two for now. But number three is is important to remember. Canon three thirty three number number three. 3333, easy to remember. No appeal or recourse is permitted against the sentence or decree of the Roman pontiff. Right, this has happened sometimes if a, a, a priest has been laicized and he wants to appeal it. Well, the, the decree of laicization is signed by the Holy Father. He can't appeal it anymore. It's gone to the highest authority. Right? So once the, the Holy Father has decreed something, you can't appeal beyond that can't appeal to a council or to another bishop or something. That's it. He has the final word. Um, so, um, so, all right, well, Canon 334, these are just general things you don't need to know for uh, quizzes and so forth. The, the, the uh, Roman pontiff is assisted by the bishops. They cooperate among, um, in various ways. Among them, the Synod of Bishops, that's the only reason I'm pointing this out now, because that's that's the topic now. The Cardinals also assist him. All these people are there to assist him. And again, you don't need to know this for quizzes. Um, don't worry about Canon 335. Um, uh, and then we can just start, we have two minutes. Um, the College of Bishops. The College of Bishops, Canon 336. The College of Bishops, who says it's the Supreme Pontiff. And as members of bishops by virtue of sacramental consecration, a hierarchical communion with the head and members of the college, and in which the apostolic body continues together with its head and never without the head, is also the subject of supreme and full power of the universal church. All right, to digest that for you, all you need to know about this is the College of Bishops. It's all the bishops together with the Pope and never without the Pope. The Pope is the head of the College of Bishops, right? And the College of Bishops is also the subject of supreme and full power over the universal church. So the Pope himself has supreme power in the church, but also the College of Bishops acting in certain ways, always in union with the Pope. The College of Bishops also has supreme power, supreme and full power. It doesn't mean that Bishop DiMarzio has supreme power over the church, but it means Bishop DiMarzio with all the other bishops under the uh, with the Pope as the head, together the bishops can, uh, they, they exercise supreme power, uh, most particularly in, uh, in, an in an ecumenical council, which we'll get into next time. Well, we've got a minute. How do they exercise the power? <laughs> got to use time well. Um, they exercise the power can 337. Um, they exercise it in a solemn manner in an ecumenical council. Um, they can also exercise it, number two, uh, together, even though they're not together physically uh, in a council, they can act together under the Roman pontiff. Um, uh, they did that uh, when they, they consecrated the world to Mary, for instance, uh, back in the 1980s or 90s, when that was. Um, and then the Roman pontiff can select different ways in which the College of Bishops exercise its function and so forth. But the main thing to remember here is the Pope has supreme and universal uh, power as does the College of Bishops in an ecumenical council or this other way of um, exercising a power together even though they're dispersed throughout the world, okay? Um, okay, we're not really going to get into councils and things. Uh, we don't have time for that. Um, so you can skip Canon 338, all these things about the council. 
you can skip the rest of, of that, that section. Skip through 341. Uh, if you want to read before next time, just that definition of the Synod of Bishops, because this is coming up now, you know, and you need to know a little bit about it. Okay, we'll get to 342 next time. And then when we're um, when we finish book two, we'll have um, we'll have an, an exam. You know, call it a midterm. It comes you know a little bit later than midterm, but uh, so we'll have it. Uh, We'll see, maybe the week after next. Uh, we'll see. We'll kind of have that, all of that taken care of, and then we'll focus on sacraments for the rest of the course. Okay? All right. Good. I know we covered a lot of stuff, but uh, most of it is just for your general knowledge, not for quizzes and things. I pointed out to you that you know, for exams, which hasn't been too much today. Okay? Good. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.